If you will turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn to Acts 16. We have it in the bulletin for convenience, but I would always encourage you to have your own copy of God's Word. There's nothing as precious as your own copy. Did you know that when Martin Luther first started the whole Protestant Reformation thing, you could not buy a German Bible? You could only buy it in Latin, which means nobody but the educated priest could read it. And now we treat it with such lightness that we have a copy of our own. In fact, I have a study full of them, but that we would cherish it Love it, hold it, and read it. It, is, uh, it tells us of Christ and of our salvation. Acts chapter 16, verses 16 and following. Hear now the word of the Lord. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into the prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and seized them, or excuse me, took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And so now, Lord, as we turn to the preaching of your word, um, we do so not because uh, of anything in me, but rather because you have promised to bless the preaching of your word. 
And so we turn to you in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, seeking you, give anointing to the preacher and hearer alike. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. In 2005, I found myself on a plane heading to England, and I was very um, eagerly, urgently, quickly reading a book that I was supposed to teach on when I got to England. I was working in a ministry there that summer, and it was a book on apologetics, and apologetics is how we explain the faith to others, especially when they have questions about it. And this lady next to me, she kept asking me all these questions. She kept giving me such pushback about what I was reading and what I believed. And I, I just wanted her to be quiet so I could read a book about how to explain Christianity to people who had problems with it. She just, just she was very inconvenient. On another occasion, at the age of 19, I found myself in passport control in an international airport in a Southeast Asian country where it is illegal for foreigners to come in to do ministry work. I was 19, and that meant I was old enough to not go with anybody else to passport control. And so I was about to go up to this scary-looking official who did not look particularly friendly, and I was worried about the 17 Gideon New Testaments that were in my, in my bag. So I went up to my, the um, leader of the group and said, Hey, you think this is a big deal? And he said, Everybody come over here! Everybody come over here! And so he calls the whole team over, and he says, Now Parker is a little worried about all the Bibles that are in his bag. And we looked up, and there's this one of those security domes right over us. There was pushback from the government that we were of the country we were visiting. And then 10 years ago in Montgomery, in my last church, I was trying to share the gospel with a homeless lady. Uh, everybody knew her in downtown was the bag lady. And so we had, uh, I'd gotten to know her over many years and was sharing the gospel with her. And every time that I would start talking about the Lord, she would start yelling in unintelligible words that I could not be heard. It was clear that she was oppressed by demons at the very least. You know, pushback against the gospel, pushback against the spread of the kingdom of God can come from many different places. Now, we live in a nation in which we have great freedoms under our Constitution, as does every religion. That doesn't mean that pushback doesn't happen from many different places. How are we to respond to that? How are we to respond to that? We were talking about that a little bit this morning in Sunday school with the youth. How do we respond when persecution comes in the workplace or on the ball field, the locker room, the school bus, at the party, broad culture around us? See, our natural, Facebook, our natural inclination is to fight back with the same words that are used to us, to curse when cursed. To respond with disdain, raising our voices and getting defensive. We have two points this morning. Expect pushback. We should expect pushback. Don't be surprised. Instead, expect it. And how do we respond to it? Expect pushback and respond well. First, we should expect pushback. Uh, and we see that in our text this morning, and we see that it comes from several sources. We see this in our text, and we'll see it in our lives. And, and the first is it comes straight from Satan. Sometimes pushback comes straight from Satan himself. Last week we left Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke in Philippi, where Lydia had become a believer, this very wealthy woman. Uh, now, in verse 16, we find them going to the same place of prayer later. They seem to have been there a while, and along the way they meet a slave girl who has the spirit of divination. 
In other words, she was possessed by a demon through whom she could tell uh, fortunes. Uh, she could do fortune telling, and telling fortunes was an important part of superstitious life and pagan religion in Rome, but especially in Philippi, actually. And, and she was able to earn a lot of money for her owners. Now, just as an aside, let me say that fortune tellers, horoscopes, astrology, these are things that Christians should stay away from for, for lots of good reasons. Um, but, uh, but, but here, she seemed to follow Paul and the gang around a lot. And not just on this day, but often. And she would say things like, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. <laughs> now, isn't it interesting that Paul and Silas are traveling around trying to convince people of this very thing? That they are there to tell them of the way of salvation. And here is this demoniac slave girl who is affirming the very things that they're trying to say. We see this a lot actually when Jesus was in his earthly ministry. He would show up, there'd be someone demon-possessed, and people didn't really know who Jesus was, but the demon sure did. Because they would recognize the one who created them, the one who rules the universe, the one against whom they had rebelled, and the one who will judge them when he comes at his second coming. Well, this d demon, working through the slave girl, recognizes exactly who Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke are. As we think about oppression, as we think about pushback against the expansion of the gospel of the kingdom, when we think of pushback against Christianity, we should not forget that we are in spiritual warfare and that Satan is arrayed against the servants of God and against God's people. Um, now, we forget this a lot because it feels like, it seems that Satan is very content in the developed world in places like America where we have you know, 2.5 cars, 3.5 kids, and a picket fence, where we have all the things that we need. He's very happy for us to think that Satan doesn't exist. Satan loves it when we don't think he exists, and so it would seem like in affluent circles that he's content for us to think he doesn't exist, and therefore he doesn't show a lot of reasons why we should believe otherwise. But if you travel worldwide, that's not the case. In the developing world, where people are much more in contact with the spiritual realm, or are aware that there's, there is a spiritual realm around them, and there's a constant battle between forces of good and evil, you see a lot, a lot more demonic oppression and possession. But that's not to say it doesn't happen here. It's just hidden. Sometimes this opposition is straight from Satan. Something seems to shift at some point. We're not sure quite what. Perhaps her constant statements were starting to be a hindrance to the gospel going forward. Verse 18 tells us, And she kept doing this for many days, Paul having become greatly annoyed. I've thought a lot about that phrase. And I wish I had a good explanation. Maybe he just really got tired of her. Or maybe something shifted and what she was doing was, was becoming unhelpful. But something snapped. And he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now commentators, I think, are right here that while it's not immediately obvious from the text, this little girl has not just been freed from demonic possession, she has also been saved spiritually. She's been saved by Christ. To be freed from a demon here is to be saved and one commentator points out, you think about the church that God is building in Philippi. Last week, who do we see that was saved? We saw this really wealthy woman, very well connected. 
And then this morning, we see who do we see? First, we see this slave girl who is not even in charge of her own life and cannot go where she wants to. Think about the far extremes on the socioeconomic spectrum. And then in a minute, we'll see the conversion of Philippian jailer, this jailer who had likely been a Roman soldier before he was employed as a jailer and who had likely done terrible things, both as a soldier and as a jailer. Those were not real nice occupations back then. They didn't have the Geneva Convention. Think about the different type of people who are saved in Philippi. You know, if, if you think about building a church, who are you going to choose to really focus on? You know, if you go from the world standards, it's going to be people just like Lydia and all of her friends because they got the money to tithe, they got the houses to meet in, you know, they're nice and respectable people, and they know if their lives are a mess to hide it, right? Isn't that how we usually operate? But that's not how God works. Because see here, the thing is, Lydia, the slave girl, and the Philippian jailer all had the same problem that you and I have. Universal problem of being under the condemnation of God justly because of things we've thought, said, and done. And there's but one solution, and God is no respecter of our age, of our stage, and our financial situation, or if you're the person who writes the checks or cashes the checks. There's one solution, and it is that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in verses 19 through 22, we see another source of pushback. First, we saw it straight from Satan. Second, though, we see it from, um, other, uh, from those who are unbelievers. See, the girl's owners, they're none too pleased about this situation. I mean, this has been their retirement plan. I mean, they have been just, just I mean, just raking in the money. Because this is real. She's not pretending she really is telling fortunes, black magic, doing possession. It's, it's kind of like the magicians in, e in Egypt's court with Pharaoh who were able to do many of the signs and wonders that Moses and Aaron had been able to do up until a point. This was real stuff. Her name had been out. Maybe there were appointments to be made. Maybe there was a backlog of cases. Maybe there was a waiting list. And all of a sudden, their stream of money turned off just like that. And they are really mad. You know, there are a lot of reasons why people who don't know the Lord will push back against the truth of Christianity. There are a lot of reasons, right? Ultimately, it comes down to what our guest preacher a few weeks ago, who was just fantastic, by the way. Uh, you know, he was talking about how the gospel is folly to those who don't know the Lord. It is folly. It is foolishness. But I want to explore two, two more reasons why we should expect pushback from those who don't know the Lord, from unbelievers. And the first is that pushback from unbelievers is ramped up when the truths of Scripture mess with what I would call little g-gods. You know, see, we all worship something or someone. We were made to worship. That is how God made us. We are going to worship something or someone. And if it's not the living God, it's going to be something else. We might call these things idols, these little, little G-gods. The big G-god is God himself, the one whom we were created to worship. But if we're not going to worship the big G-god, we're going to worship something that we're going to put in place of God, also known as an idol. Here, the slave girl owners were not concerned about her as a person or the claims of the gospel. Rather, their lives were dominated by love of money. 
You know, as we, as we look at corporations in our culture who are making big statements on the, in the social scene, do you know why they're doing that? Most of the time it's because they're thinking long term of wanting to make sure that they are positioned well for people to still like their companies and their products. They don't want to be on the quote-unquote wrong side of history so that they can continue to sell their product. When you start messing with the little g-gods of our culture, you should expect pushback. Certainly here in this context, we see that they have, if you'll excuse the expression, substituted the almighty dollar for the almighty God. And when that happens, bad things happen in our lives. Now, we do this as believers too, don't we? We run after money a lot more than we probably ought to. Being rich isn't a sin. Being a poor is not sin. But there are both biblical and godly reasons for both of those things. Well, in our, in our culture, the biggest thing right now seems to be, in our moment, the area of sexuality and gender. And the church should expect pushback on this if we're going to hold the line about a biblical view of these things. You know, as a time, as a pastor, I've been, I'm sure, cussed out a lot of times behind my back. But only one time to my face. And it was, uh, it was at Walmart here in Bruton. And it was over this issue. And by God's grace, I didn't say anything back. But it wasn't necessarily out of love or patience or, you know, any kind of ooey-gooey feeling or seeking to bless because I was cursed. It was more of like, what just happened? Right? But we should expect pushback. Because here's the thing it's spiritual warfare. See, we should not get into this idea of us versus them. It's so easy to, isn't it? As in the us versus them, there's a line between, and I deserve God's love and grace, and psh, those folks got it wrong. They don't. Really? As we, respond, as we think about how we respond to pushback, that's a big mistake when we start classifying us versus them. Because here's the thing. Before we were saved by Christ, we were in the same situation. We should expect pushback from those who are still under the, the domain of darkness, according to Colossians chapter 1 and 2. We should expect pushback from those who are still following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. It's easy to hate when you're hated, isn't it? It's really easy to. But is, is, that, is that what Paul and his friends do here? See, our battle is not... Uh, um, P.J. McClung preached on this a while back. How do we think about the curses of the Old Testament? You know, the thing is, our fight is not against unbelievers, those who don't know Christ. It's not. The target's much bigger and much more dangerous. And we read that in Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's people, right? But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, back to Philippi. Once the slave owners realize what's happened, they seize Paul and Silas and they take them to the marketplace. And they do what they're supposed to. They take them to the marketplace. That's where the two magistrates, there would have been two of them, uh, would hear cases. 
So they did what they were supposed to, and they, well, I mean, you know, they were looking for blood, but they went the legal route. They hid behind the law, or at least part of it. But they weren't interested in the truth. They had an agenda, and Satan plays dirty. And so they made false accusations around, uh, against them, and soon the crowds join in. You know, crowds are much like sharks. Once they smell blood in the water, it doesn't matter what or whom they're eating. They just want to eat. And so we see pushback from a third area. So first we see pushback from Satan directly. The second we see pushback from those in authority. And then third, we see pushback from those uh, unbelievers. I think I got that wrong. Let me start over. Pushback against, uh, from Satan himself, then from unbelievers, and third from those in authority. We see this in verses 22 to 24. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Well, this wasn't a fair trial, was it? See, they were innocent of these charges. They were made-up charges. But the crowds had already decided, and you know, one of the most important things for the magistrates in the Roman world was to keep order. You know, I think this is a lot what um, motivates pushback now, that as pendulum swings in a cultural moment, then people and corporations and your friends... They're really just trying to go along with the flow, aren't they? They're trying to maintain order. And when we make order to be something that is a a little g-god in and of itself, we, we cry out for peace or that there is peace when there is no peace. Well, the thing that they had to do was maintain order. And the reason for that was because if there was ever a riot in a Roman city... We'll see this later in Ephesus. That the Roman military would just come in and they would clean house whoever was closest to them. If, they, if you were within the reach of their sword, you were going down. It was violent, it was vicious, and it was indiscriminate. Because if you couldn't handle it, we'll come in and take care of it ourselves. You know, as we think about the difference between the Roman Caesar... And Christ is king. The Roman Caesar would come in and he would wipe things out in order to maintain peace, where our true king would come out and be wiped out so that we might be at peace. Those are two very different things. And so they have Paul and Silas stripped. Perhaps naked, which was a very common way to humiliate someone. That would be pretty humiliating, wasn't it? It would be one thing to be... This, this happened to Jesus, by the way. This is what they did to him. We see him in a loincloth in the pictures because of our, our own sens- sensibilities. But, but that's not how it happened. Jesus would have been naked on the cross. And so here are those, the followers of Jesus, who are stripped probably down to their birthday suits and then humiliated before everyone, perhaps tied to a post. And then the, the magistrates looking to maintain order. All the while, Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They said, all right, let's beat them. Now, the police of those days, they were named for what they would do. I can't remember the Latin name, but what they carried was something called a, let's see if I can get this right, a fasces. I, 
not a Latin scholar, pretty sure that's how you say it, Fosses. And it was a bundle of wooden rods. Then up through the middle was a metal axe. And with this thing, they would um, mete out one of two judgments. They would beat you with the wooden rods connected to the axe, or they would turn it around and cut your head off. Right? These were the, really the two options that these disciples had. and They beat them. They beat them very hard, and it was brutal treatment. And when they had thrown them into the inner prison, as we read here, they put their feet in stocks. Now, a stock, it's not like uh, you think of the stocks in American, American Revolutionary War history, kind of that where you're out in the middle of the, circle, of the square, and they put your head and your hands in your stock. And, and the whole point, and it's not comfortable, but the whole point is that you're just humiliated. That's not these kind of stocks. These kind of stocks were for their feet, and they would have not been right, the holes would not have been right beside each other. They would have been like this. And the whole purpose was to give you great discomfort. It was another form of torture. You know, today when we think about pushback from those in authority in our culture, uh, we can see it in a lot of areas. Now, praise God, we're at a cultural point where I can stand here and preach this sermon and you can listen to it without fear of reprisal. However, I will note that for the last six years, my sermons have been online. And at some point, that may come to be a source of evidence. You ever thought about that? Every one of my sermons has been online since I've been here, or about six to eight, eight years. See, in Canada, what they've done is they've just um, passed new legislation the last couple of years that to say that homosexuality is a sin from the pulpit is hate speech. And, and they are um, they're, they're very actively enforcing this. And guess where they're finding out a pastor's views? Online. I'm going to cut this sermon in two. We're going to finish the second half next week. Um, but I want to tell you this. Next week I'm going to talk about how to respond to, how we respond to pushback. My friends, you should expect pushback. It should not be a surprise to you when there are policies adopted at work that affect you. Some of you have told those things to me. There shouldn't, it shouldn't be a surprise to us when policies of our companies, uh, the places where we shop, when they start adopting things that are foreign to the Word of God. That should not be a surprise to us. By and large, the history of America has been we've had a cultural Christianity alongside biblical Christianity. And these things have met together long enough and in most in close enough places where, especially in the South, and we still have this some in the South, where there was a lot of overlap and there were there was safety in terms of not expecting official pushback or, or political pushback. But I think one of the things that is gonna happen is that that's gonna end. And I don't know that that's all bad. Now, I pray for our culture. I, I pray our culture doesn't go any further than it already has. I, I expect it sure will. Um, but the thing, one of the things that's going to happen, one of the things that persecution, one of the things that pushback will do is it will show finally and fully if we love the Lord or not. 
So y'all know I've had COVID. It was really exciting. And, uh, and we had an a at-home COVID test. Um, I think I spent $250 on COVID tests because we were trying to figure out when we were going to test positive so I'd know when I could come back to work. Um, and, you know, so we did these at-home COVID tests first. And, and so you take the swab, you put it in this liquid, and then you put drops in the liquid. Those drops are like the pushback. And it's not until you put the drops in and you find out if you actually have COVID or not. You know, you might think one way or the other, but until that moment comes, you don't know. And I think this is what happens when there's pushback. It makes us really consider what is important in our lives. Now, there will be times when you fail. There will be. There have been times when I have failed. When I have not said the things I should have, stood where I should have. And God is so gracious and merciful. And there will be times where it's hard to know what to do. I mean, there's just a lot of questions about how to navigate this moment, aren't there? And I think we ought to be careful in making very um, stringent statements when Scripture gives us wisdom of, or calls us to have wisdom of how to respond to something. I'm not saying hedge on the truth, period. Never do that. But how do you navigate these things? I, some of these things I don't know. And it's going to take wisdom, and it's going to take actually relying on the Lord rather than sound bites, won't it? Sound bites are so much easier to deal with. But you know, if you can put the truth, besides the gospel, because it's very simple enough to be believed, but if you can put the truth in 45 seconds, you can be guaranteed you're missing something. Because it's always more complicated than you think it is. I was telling the youth this morning in Sunday school that um, as we face temptation, you have to make the decision now how you will respond then. Because if you don't have a game plan for facing temptation, whether it's in a party or, or looking at your phone or whatever it is, you will fail, right? You will. But if you have a plan now, if you've thought through it now, if you have trusted the Word of God, if you have studied the Word of God, He will help you when those moments come. Let me share two verses and then we'll close. The first is Matthew chapter 5. Verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. What does that say? Blessed are you when there is pushback against you because of your stance in the Lord. But then it goes further. Rejoice. Really, Lord? Really? Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who are before you. Last, uh, last passage, 2 Timothy chapter th- 3. We'll end here. This is what the youth and I talked about in Sunday school this morning. As we think about our only rule of faith and practice, the only thing that we have to help us, to govern us, of how we are to navigate pushback, whether it's on social media, whether it is at the workplace, whether it's with your friends or on the ball field, or even in your home, the only real will faith and practice that we have is the Word of God. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by Him, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction and training in righteousness. There it is, training, preparation for what is to come. That the man of God may be complete, may have everything he's going to need equipped for every good work. My friends, turn to the Lord and His Word. May He equip us for everyday life. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You that though Caesar would seek to have peace at any cost, our God would lay down His life, our King would lay down His life that we have, might have peace at the cost of His blood and His life. We thank You for the life we now have and the life we now live. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and who came and died for us, who gave Himself up for us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. My friends, whatever.